Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And today I have Dr. Christy Vanacore. And that's not exactly how you pronounce her name. I'm going to let her tell you how to pronounce her, the Italian version of her name. But hey, this lady, I can already feel her incredible energy just from the brief conversation I had backstage before the show. So do yourself and me and everybody on planet Earth a favor and grab your phone, grab what, or, well, if you're watching, just hit that little share button underneath this video and share this out to all of your friends and all of your family and stay with us because we're going to come right back and break through some walls today. And we're back. Let me bring Dr. Christy on. Dr. Christy, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you so much, Ken, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. I'm, I'm, um, first off, I don't think I've had, I've had maybe a couple of people that, that seemed rather grateful to be on the show. But you really were like <laughs> edifying the heck out of me. You just became my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyone who is a storyteller is a friend of mine, Ken. So, oh uh, well, thank you. Yeah. I I I love your energy already, and I'm excited to hear your story. So, um, I know you've seen the show before. I I started this about four years ago. Um, I. I mean, it was honestly, it was because I was in a kind of stuck situation in life. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I know the power behind hearing other people's stories of how they got stuck and how they broke through. Um, so why not start a show and let them come on and tell their stories and maybe I'll get something out of it. <laughs> so it was yeah. very selfish reason. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, so, so Christy, tell everybody where you were, start with where you were born and raised. Yeah. So I was born and raised in the Bronx, New York. <laughs> mm. um, and the Bronx is a super special place. It continues to be with me. And when um, you live in the Bronx, Ken, we have a very special saying that says, you can take the girl out of the Bronx, but you can't take the Bronx out of the girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that is really true for me because, um, you know, growing up as a child in the Bronx in the late 70s, early 80s, it was just a really incredible time. The the values of the Bronx that that, you know, still are alive with me today. It was all about community. It was all about family. And, you know, that old adage of it takes a village to raise a child. Yeah. That is really how it was. And. You know, I came to learn later on along my journey that um, 
you know, what felt so resonant about it for me and why, you know, it's still such a part of me is because our ancestors for millennia lived that way, right? You know, we have, we were part of the pack. We were in communities and we were working together to raise our children and to contribute to the greater good. And I really was blessed with that childhood in the Bronx. And that is still such a part of me today, that sense of community, bringing people together, gathering together in community, connecting people is all about what I do and all about what I am because it's what we all need. It's it's actually imprinted in our beings to be that way, right? To be relational beings. You, you know, so, I think about, I, I've been to, you're going to laugh. So I've been to man, I've been to Manhattan um, mm -hmm. and I drove there from Columbus, Ohio. I live North of Columbus. And, um, I, I, I'll never forget what, there's a tunnel you go under something. I would, I, yeah, there's uh, a couple of tunnels there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Tunnel. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Believe it or not. I don't go into the city all that much. Really? So, <laughs> yeah. well, I remember I, I, I drove over there and the traffic was like, OMG. And, and, and yeah. it was like, I've never, the energy of New York is crazy. It's unbelievable in a good way. Right. I'm never allowed to drive there again, by the way, because I'll get arrested. <laughs> I, I got like, they sent me these things in the mail saying, you owe, you owe, um, the tolls or something. It was like 20, 30 bucks. And I'm like, all right. Yeah, right. And I forgot about it. I forgot. I forgot about it. Right. So like a month or so later, they send me another one saying, now you have to pay 200 and some dollars in fines and all this stuff. Anyway, I, I call them, I argue. They're like, no, you have to pay it. And I'm like, I'm not paying your stupid right. fine for being 30 days late. You're out of your mind. So anyway, like I New think York I'll get arrested again. if I ever drive there again. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely sounds like New York City. <laughs> yeah, this guy was rude. But anyway, when I was there and I think about all of the things I saw as a kid on TV, like I, you know, they they portray the Bronx and as a violent and, you know, and yes. it, it doesn't sound like that's the way it is at all. Well, you know what? I mean, in fairness, things have changed a bit. Um, I've been out of the Bronx now for a little while. Yeah. Um, but certainly when I grew up there, it was not that way at all. It was, you know, we were, uh, most of us there were, um, second and third generation immigrant families, you know, Italian families, Irish, you know, Jewish families yeah. and, you know, all coming together again in community just to try to survive, you know, to try to get ahead and make a life for a lives for ourselves. Yeah. So, you know, the other value that yeah. was so ingrained in me that came from that area was a work ethic, right? Because we were all at best blue collar workers. You yeah. know, my father worked for the department of sanitation. He was a garbage collector and, yeah. you know, and my mom was a secretary working at various companies until she eventually, um, you know, uh, got her real estate license and went into real estate. And she also inherited a laundromat of all things. And so every day after school, I would be with my mom and she would pick me up from the Catholic school in the Bronx, St. Benedict's. Yeah. Yeah. And I would go either to the laundromat where I would break people's change to give them quarters for the washing machine or fold clothes for people who dropped off their clothes for service. Um, or I'd be showing houses with her. And all wow. of her clients would swear that I was going to go into real estate because I could sell a house in nobody's, you know, like nobody's business. 
So, and then on the weekends to make extra money for food and all that, um, we would make silk flower arrangements and sell them at local flea markets. So, wow. So you were brought up as a hustler. I was a hustler. Karen. I love Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I never knew any other way to be. And it was, wow. and it never, you know, I, I'm so grateful to my parents for this because yes, we hustled. We busted our asses all the yeah. time, but there was never a complaint. There was never any resentment. It was just like, this is what we did. And we were so proud because come Sunday dinner, right? The, the typical Italian feast, right? Yeah. Where we would gather on Sunday. That was where you saw the fruit of your labor, right? When we could put meatballs together on the table, you know, when we could put a dinner together yeah. and have the whole family and the whole neighborhood over, that's when we knew like, okay, we're doing all right. And we're doing this together. And so it was to me the only way I would ever want to live. Yeah. So yeah, we hustled and, you know, like I said, after school was working on the weekends, I was working, selling the silk flower arrangements at night. We would, we would make the flowers. We would, we would collect, we would go through the neighborhood and we would collect, use baby food, jar, baby food jars, wash them out, take the labels off, clothes pins. Cause we used to hang our clothes outside. Right. Yep. Yeah. Even though we owned a laundromat, we didn't have our own washer and dryer. <laughs> wow. And we would take clothespins, pull them apart, and we would tape them around the perimeter of, of the of the baby food jar to make a vase. Like we were doing the whole rustic chic thing before it was a thing. <laughs> wow. Like pairing wood and glass, you know, before we knew what we were doing. And we would put all these flowers in them and make these elaborate decorations. And I would, you know, help my mom at night. And then she would stay up till... God only knows what time of night doing it on her own. And then on the weekends, we would get in the car. We would pack up her old Oldsmobile, this big brown jalopy Oldsmobile, yeah. right? We would pack it up and we would head out to the flea markets, you know? And so Jeez. all we did was work. And, and I loved every minute of it. And I was always with my mom or my dad or my grandma, you know, I didn't have babysitters. I wasn't left home alone. We did everything together as a family. Wow. You know, and then when there was downtime and, you know, I would be hanging out on the streets of the Bronx, there was no cell phones and no, you know, anything. And yeah. all the moms, you know, they had each other's back. They were looking out for each other's kids. And you felt that, you know, you knew that it really was that village feeling. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. So and you... As a kid, I mean, did you, it doesn't sound like you had any time for this, but did you get in any trouble? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> were, did you, did you ever find yourself like, oh no, I screwed that one up or anything like that that stands out at all? Not when I was younger and here's why. So there, there came a point in my life when I, when I had wished that my childhood looked different because here's the thing. I was terrified to do anything wrong. Okay. So mm. I had a lot of fear in me from a very young age, mm. um, various, you know, traumatic things happen in childhood. Mm. And this isn't mm. about, you know, blaming them or anything. Cause I no. know those things happen for me, not right, to me, right, right. but it instilled in me a very mm. fragile sense of self and a very fragile sense of safety. And I also learned what it took, right. That I needed to work hard. I need to stay on the straight and narrow in order to get ahead right? Yeah. In order to help my family and give back to my family. And I also learned from very young what it took to make my dad in particular proud. Mm. 
So my dad was a really depressed man. I'm using that Mm. word now, you know, at the time we just, you know, we didn't call it that, Yeah. but um, he was really wounded. A lot of trauma as a child, you know, he watched his father drop dead in front of him while eating a sandwich in their kitchen in the South Bronx, you know, Wow. and became mute for several years after it because he was so traumatized and, you know, no one knew what to do then. Trauma wasn't a word that people talked about then. Right. You know, there was no, let's get you therapy and let's go to a trauma expert. You know, there was none of that. Right. And he just knew he had to keep going to school and keep working hard. And now, you know, he and his brothers were, were the men of the house and they had to work and they had to produce and they had to take care of their mom. And so, you know, he never worked through those issues. And anyway, fast forward to when I was born, Mm. um, my dad, who, you know, everyone just thought was like introverted and to himself. And, you know, um, he was either involved with me wanting to take care of me or wanting to do bodybuilding. He became very interested in bodybuilding for whatever reason. Wow. And as I grew up, the only thing that would make him smile was when I would come home with a good grade in school and he would say, wow, Christy, you're so smart. And we'd be walking down the avenue. So we called it, we'd be walking down the avenue. And if he ran into somebody, he would say, yeah, this is my daughter. She's so smart. She's a straight A student. She's on the honor roll. And I learned very quickly again, right? That, you know, my productivity, right? My work equaled my worth as a person. And I had to do whatever it took to keep on that road. So I stayed home and I wasn't working. I, you know, with my mom, I stayed home. I was doing homework all the time, you know, and that also became a way that I channeled my anxiety. Right. So I was having panic attacks from, you know, my earliest memory of having a panic attack. I was probably about four or five years old. And of course I didn't know what to call it. Is, is that, I mean, is that related to what your dad was feeling, you think? Of, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, he, wow. there were situations, you know, he got involved in some very unhealthy relationships after he and my mom divorced. And, um, you know, just, I was, I was not intentionally placed in, in some situations that were really dangerous. Mm. And, and I had no, um, you know, a young child had no business being in these situations. Right. You know, yeah bailing his girlfriend out of jail and things of that nature, right? That, wow. that of course, would be traumatizing for any kid. Yeah. So, you know, I found myself in those situations. My world was already rocked when he and my mom split, you know, and, yeah. um, and then add, you know, add insult to injury, right? Were all of these situations that I found myself in and, um, you know, that, that really just kind of paved the way for me to go to a place of fear and, you know, for me to just make sure that I did whatever I could to just make everybody yeah. happy, make everything be okay. You know, I became my father's confidant. Um, and, you know, and this is a thing and in psychology, we call this parentified child, you know, a child who, who, you know, really sort of has to grow up way before her time in order to take care of the emotional and sometimes physical needs of a parent. And my dad was in so much distress and had nowhere Mm. to turn. And he turned to me. So he would pick me up on Saturdays for, um, you know, for my, for for my um, visitation with him. Yeah. And in the car, he would go on and on, 
you know, everything from that. He missed my mom and his life is falling apart and he's arguing with a girlfriend and, you know, things that a little girl at, you know, eight or nine or 10 or at any age really should not be privy to. But I took it seriously and I felt honored that my father trusted me with his story. Right. And I felt like, you know what, if I can be there for him and I can offer him any support in any way, whatever that looked like. And a lot of times, you know, it was me sitting in the car, just looking at him and nodding and saying, yes, like really just offering him unconditional love, you know, and, and I would imagine, um, you know, I write about this a little in my book because my favorite stuffed animal at the time when I was a little girl was a Care Bear. And mm. do you remember these these little stuffed bears with these little fat bellies, right? And yep. they had pictures on them. And um, you know, they would they would sort of like beam light from their bellies. And I thought, well, if I could just beam some light out of me into my dad, maybe I can help him. So I really put that on myself, you know, it wasn't like he asked for help, it wasn't like he told me I needed to do this or that. But um you know, it was really these implicit messages. And I really just put that burden on myself. So that I mean, and and if I may interrupt you for a moment, I I think that it's, it's, this is, this is powerful, because I don't think um, there's a lot of people that don't realize how codependent they end up making their children. And, and, and that carries over from, I mean, you know, Brian Tracy was on the show and he said something that I'll never, ever forget. And that was the moment we take a hundred percent responsibility for everything in our lives is the moment we cross over from being a child into becoming an adult. Oh, I and, love that. and isn't that great? And I, I, great. I remember, I remember hearing that and I was like, like so many people never oh, become yeah. an adult. Yeah. And then they project that onto their children. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yep. Yep. Wow. And I, I work with so many parents, you know, a big part of what I do is, you know, helping parents and helping them understand that everything we do is our lasting legacy. Right. And this, again, Mm. this isn't about blame, but it's so much about helping parents understand Mm -hmm. that, you know, when we don't heal our wounds, we bleed on our children. Right. Yeah, and, so, and and you can you can take the high road and say it's not about blame. I'm gonna take the lower road and say it is. <laughs> I'll sorry. allow it. <laughs> Shame on you if you're doing that to your kids. I'm sorry, but no, but you know what? But parents don't even, you know, you use the word, you know, dependent and codependent. Parents don't even realize it's happening. You know, right. I know, and and it took me, um, it took me a long time, Ken, to you know, as I embarked on my healing journey, because at a certain point in my life, I realized, okay, this isn't okay. Right. Like this is not okay for me to be having these experiences. Right. It's not. No. And I understood that it was connected to anxiety. Again, I didn't have the language then to call it anxiety or whatever. Right. But I knew, I knew that, you know, me lying on the floor of my room, sobbing and sweating and my heart racing and vomiting, you know, I knew that that was not the way to live. And I knew that it was connected to all of these experiences, right? Wow. And at some point, um, you know, I'm fast forwarding a little bit to when I got to college, 
Um, I was having such daily panic attacks. And I, by that point, I was engaging in behaviors that people nowadays would call OCD and things of that nature. And, you know, there I was again, straight A student, right? I was at yeah. Fordham University. I was in the honors program. I was doing all the right things, you know, on paper, checking yeah. all the boxes and, you know, making everybody proud. Yeah. And yet what nobody saw was that behind closed doors, I was a mess. And so one day I was in the bathroom. It was the third floor of Dealey Hall at Fordham University in the Bronx. And I got tired of having to leave the room to go to the bathroom to put cold compresses on my head. Oh, my you know? God. And I thought, OK, I'm done. I'm done. I have to get help. And I took myself to the counseling center. And, you know, it was interesting, right, because I was a psychology major at that point because I knew from very young that I was going to help people. Didn't necessarily know how, but I just knew. And I took myself to the counseling center and, you know, it was sort of this like scary place. Like I didn't know what went on in there, but I knew I needed help. And when I first started, I met this incredible psychologist who really got me started on my healing journey. And I remember I was so, you know, I was there to be helped, but I was so locked up inside. And he mm. would say to me, you know, what are you not saying? Like, what story are you not telling? And it took me months to finally get to a place where I exploded in anger. And I said, I'm so angry at my dad. I'm so angry. I hate him. I hate, you know, and all of this was spewing out of me. And wow. I was hysterically crying because I felt guilty for feeling that way. Because I knew, even though I was angry, right? I knew that he never intended to hurt me. This wasn't intentional. I knew my father loved me in the only way he knew how, right? And um, so I felt bad and I, I inherently had this all this compassion for him, yet I didn't know that I was still allowed to be angry, right? I was still allowed to feel. And that was the first time in my life as a 19, almost 20-year-old young woman by that point that I allowed myself to feel. Prior wow. to that, I was anesthetized, bulldozing through, again, relying on that Bronx, you know, badass work ethic, right? Yep. We could get through anything. We could survive anything. And we did. I finally allowed myself to feel. And then the irony, Ken, is one month after that, my father died. And so I never had the chance to sit with him and talk with him and process all of this with him. It was now left with me. Wow. You know, um, I have read a lot about this with Dr. Wayne Dyer. Talks oh, yeah. A lot yeah. about, I love his work. I Dr. Bernie Siegel, he talks a lot about, I mean, and I, I love, love him. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I I think it's interesting though that the because I know you know this but we can still process it right like we can still I know people who've gone to the their to the grave site and said all right we're having a talk dude yes right, right? so yeah and just sit there and and so I so this happened you said 19 20 years old yeah. it started surfacing finally because it will it always will it always, always. does it, it yeah. will yeah um 
so so this all comes bubbling up and and i can relate because i remember when i got sober i had you know 34 years of suppressed yes Yes. and and somebody told me the word sober was an acronym for son of a bitch everything's real (laughs) like all of a sudden you feel all this stuff i love that yeah and 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 so so talk about what happened from that point? Cause here you are in college. You're yep. I'm, I'm assuming 1920. So you're still in your undergrad. Yep. Um, and, and, and you're, wh- what happened from that point? Where did things start to go for you? Yeah. So my father dies suddenly and unexpectedly, right at 50 years old. And, um, at the time I was also engaged to be married and very young. And, you know, so it's a couple months before. So it was um, it was a week before my college graduation that he died. And wow. it was four months before my wedding. And wow. I took that. I almost, and it's, it, you know, it sounds a little crazy, right? It's sort of this distorted magical thinking that most people do. I looked at my expression of anger at the time as killing him. And so what it did was it had me retreat even further into myself. And I thought, oh no, I'm not feeling any of this ever again. Look what happens when I let myself feel bad things happen, right? Mm. And so what happened from that point, Ken, is that I retreated inward even more. And wow. I went back to bulldozing through my life at lightning speed. So I got married. I was in a really amazing job for a new college grad. I flew out to California representing a large company. It was a psychological outcomes uh, computer software company. And I went to this huge expo with, you know, thousands of people and did presentations and bulldozed through, went to grad school, you know, got into a seven-year grad school program, a combined doctoral degree in clinical psychology and school psychology at the Furkoff Graduate School of Albert Einstein College of Medicine, bulldozed through that, right? Again, checking all the boxes, doing everything right, but I was not feeling. I was not present in any of those moments. I was, again, back to being really anesthetized. Wow. And that went on for a long time. Fast forward to, so my 20s was the only thing I really remember of my 20s was working and putting out the fires of panic attacks. That's all that, that, that it was. You know, I was terrified to be alone. I would go to work with my husband so I didn't have to be home alone because in silence, I would have to feel right? So I would pack up all my grad school books, go into the city. He worked in the city and I would sit at a desk in his office just so I didn't have to be alone. Wow. That was my twenties. And then, um, right before 30, I said, okay, well, it's now time to have a baby and I'm going to invest all of my, uh, you know, my, my, uh, my wisdom and my knowledge and my you know, my, I, I, I started wearing my OCD, like a badge of honor, right? I'm going to do this well, and I'm going to be prepared and I'm going to do it perfectly. Right. I was the perfectionist and I'm going to now have this baby perfectly. Right. And I wrote this birth plan and I, you know, threw everything toxic away in my house, you know, went through these crazy lengths to now have a perfect pregnancy and a perfect baby. And guess what? (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead. Yeah, right. 
Any train moving really fast derails eventually, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I um, had this amazing pregnancy. Everything was going well. And then um, my birthing experience with my first son um, took a really ugly turn towards the end. And um, my life was in danger and so was his. Mm. And at the very last minute, you know, I had to um, have an emergency C-section and I was at that point literally anesthetized so they could, you know, safely deliver my baby into the world. And after that experience, my body broke down. My body broke down. It started with thyroid issues. It started with heart, you know, it, then it moved to heart issues. Then it was GI issues. Then it was neurological issues. It was one thing after another, right? Because what do we know? We know now, right? Yeah. I know now what I didn't know then, which is at the root of all health, physical health issues is trauma. And I had been burying and burying and burying and burying for so long. And again, that's going to explode at some point. This and is so, some Dr. Joe Dispenza stuff we're getting into. Yes, now. we are. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We're going to make a quantum leap, no pun intended. Yes, we are. I yeah. love me some Joe Dispenza. <laughs> yeah, um, I love Joe. His work shaped my my journey also. But yeah. Um, yeah, so my son, his birth catalyzed for me what I now know to be a rebirth because I had no choice in that, in that moment but to start feeling. I was bedridden and there I was trying to nurse a baby, raise a baby. I had my own practice at the time right? I had been working 80 hours a week with clients, you know, and again, just even bulldozing through that, you know, helping people, but, but not, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't my genuine authentic self, right? So something was missing and I never knew what it was. And I thought, okay, the, the way to find it is to keep moving. Yeah. You know, came to find out later, the way to find it is to get still, right? But at that point, you know, I was bulldozing. So now I have this baby and I'm like, you know, oh shit, like, what do I do with this kid? And now I'm sitting there and I'm nursing this baby and I can't move. And I'm feeling all this stuff in my body physically. And I went to doctor after doctor after doctor who told me it was all in my head. <clears throat> my OB at the time said, here, here's a prescription for Prozac. You should go on that. And by the way, get a nanny because you're just tired. I had an I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it really, that's how they, they kind of, anyway, yeah, that uh, I it. could go into a whole, we won't do that. But Me too. Yeah. We could <laughs> yeah, <laughs> digress yeah. on that big time, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I had an endocrinologist look at me and say, you know, well, you're a new mom. You probably eat too much chocolate and eat too much. And that's why you're of not course. feeling well. I mean, I've, I've, yeah. the things I've heard yeah. from medical practitioners, it's yeah. insane. Um, and so I went through all of that, but I knew, I knew there was something else. I knew there was something more and, um, things got progressively worse to the point where, you know, my son was, um, about two and a half, three. And, um, I wanted to end my life. I didn't want to live that way anymore. Yeah. I didn't want to live that way. I didn't want to live scared. 
I didn't want to live numb. And now I was in pain and now I was feeling everything. And at, the, at that time I had been diagnosed with lupus. My body was literally breaking down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I said, oh, I, I don't want to live like this. And my baby doesn't deserve a mom like this. And my husband doesn't deserve a wife like this. And my clients, you know, I went through that whole feeling yeah. sorry for myself and yeah. feeling like the victim, you know, and look, it was real. It was real feeling, you know? Um, and there was one day when I thought, okay, that's it. Today's the day I'm out. I'm out. And I could barely get out of bed that day. Wow. I had so much joint pain and inflammation in my system. And I made my way, I had to crawl from my bedroom to the bathroom. And, um, <laughs> when I get in the bathroom, I see this little piece of paper, this little, uh, post-it note on the mirror in my bathroom. And it was filled with a bunch of hearts that my little boy had made and wrote like, I love you, mommy. Aww. And I saw that and I said, okay. All right, Christy, it's time. It's time, but it's not time to end your life. It's time to start living it. And that catalyzed my journey. You know, that, that later came to be called a rewilding journey, right? I didn't know even what I was getting into at the time. But I knew that that child came into this world to teach me something. And I was not going to let that go. I was not going to not honor that. You know, wow. this, this baby deserved more than that. But th this uh, up to this mom, this was the moment, though, that you had kind of um, pre-planned your the end of your life. You were going to, to end it in that bathroom. Wow. Yep. Yep. And there was the sign, <laughs> wow. you know, there was the sign and I'm just so grateful that I saw it, you know, and I'm wow. just so grateful that, um, that I used that. And so then that began a new life for me that began life. I should say, yeah. not even yeah. a new life. Yeah. You know, I wasn't really living before that. Wow. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. So, and this is all, are you in the, still in the Bronx at that point? Where were, where were you living at that point? We had moved to, um, we had moved a couple times. We had moved to, um, at that point we were living in Westchester County, um, in the suburbs in the suburbs. We were in the burbs. We were in, um, an area called Cortland Manor by Yorktown Heights and, okay. um, you know, a, a really beautiful area, nice community never felt like home to me because, you know, I wanted that, that feeling from the Bronx that yeah. just can't be replicated in a lot mm -hmm. of places. And, um, so it didn't feel like home to me. And, and I know that was part of it. You know, I was just ignoring all of it and just, and just moving, you know, just moving. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you, um, at that point you said you started living your life now, did you, were you already a doctor at that point? I was, okay. yeah, I was. And I was okay. practicing and, you know, I had been trained, um, a very, very traditionally, very Western medicine model, right? So okay. it's a very diagnostic model. Yeah. It's a one size fits all model, right? Yeah. It's just, you know, taking a set of symptoms, going through the checklist, diagnosing somebody, handing them some pills, right. putting them in some talk therapy and calling it a day, you know, and yeah. that never felt right to me either, you know? And so mm. by this point, not only was I seeing my own life 
and my own symptoms and my own experiences through new lenses, but I started to look at my clients' experiences much differently as well. Wow. And so the journey that I embarked on, again, that I later called rewilding, became not just a rewilding of myself, but it was the field of psychology as I knew it because it was wrong. It was wow. outdated. It was not helping anybody. It was keeping people stuck. It was further anesthetizing people, right? There was no expanding of consciousness, waking people up. There was none of that. And I intuitively knew that that's what was needed. And I started wow. having a lot of memories. You know, when I was a little girl, um, I was an only child. And so I spent a lot of time alone, you know, when I wasn't working with my mom. Yeah. And, you know, I knew things that I didn't know how I knew. You know, I had this like sort of sixth sense about me, right? You know, that I later understood what it meant, but I just knew things. And I also believed very strongly in the power of nature and animals and, and, and trees and plants. And, you know, and again, I didn't know why that was a thing for me. It just was. And so fast forward to this rebirthing of me, both as a woman and as a psychologist, I felt so called to go back to my roots, to go back to what had been calling me from very early in my life that I let fall to the wayside. You know, I let all of the conditioning of, you know, Catholic school and hardworking values and, you know, all of that and parents' expectations, teachers' expectations. I let all of that become the veil of illusion under which I lived my life, thinking it was me, you know? Mm. And now here I was waking up and saying, no, I think there's something else. And this is all happening around the time that you crawled to the bathroom. This was after, right? Right, this was but after, in yeah. that, that time period, after, after, shortly after, right? It yes. sounds like. Um, yes. And and you were in your twenties, you said. At that point, I was in my early thirties. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So so you started having what I like I refer to. I'm sure you you would on some level a spiritual awakening. You got it. <laughs> and I didn't know to call it that at the time. Sure. And at one point I took myself to um, a healer who was a colleague of mine. You know, I sort of knew about her because by this point, again, I'm realizing that this very Western medical model isn't right. Right. That there's something else. And I right. started to reach for information. I started studying, right? Because I always say, you know, once you, once you see, you can't unsee, right? So I started to, um, you know, to read and explore and, and study spirituality and try to think about something other than, you know, I was raised with religion, Catholic religion, yeah. and that was no longer resonating. And I said, you know, I I'm curious about spirituality, not religion. And I started to study and I started to go to different classes and groups and, um, a colleague who I knew in my circle, right. Um, I reached out to her and I said, you know, I don't really know what I need, but I need something. Will you help me? And I went to her and I went in for the first session. And I remember, you know, complaining about every physical ailment, right? Because that was so prominent at that point, right? Yeah. So I'm like, you know, I can't swallow. I can't move. I can't, you know, it was all the physical stuff. And she just looked at me and she smiled and she said, oh, baby girl, she's so sweet. She's very grandmotherly. She still is. And um, she said, oh, sweet baby girl, this is not a physical health crisis. This is a spiritual one. And I said, huh? 
<laughs> and she said, this is a spiritual awakening. You're being initiated. And I'm just looking at her. I love you it. You know, like one part of me is like, this woman's nuts. But there's another part of me that's like, this woman just hit the nail on the head. Yep. Right? I, I, you know, because of my experience in recovery, um, the, the, um, the book that we refer to in the recovery programs, it's called the big book. And it says mm -hmm. in there that we found that it's actually not the alcohol that's the problem, that it's a spiritual malady. That's the 100%. actual problem. And, and, and I, I, so I love, this is like, like you could have, you just turned a while ago, <laughs> right down my street. We're, we're, we're on the same street together here. Yeah. So, and go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Ken, I was just, I just wanted to say that, um, during my, my training in grad school, I spent, um, a significant amount of time working at a local hospital on their dual diagnosis unit. Mm. And I was um, assisting the chief psychologists and psychiatrists building a harm reduction program for those who were experiencing addiction. And at the time, harm reduction was a new thing. You yeah. know, it was it was not really spoken about. Right. It was either you went to AA and abstained or, or nothing. Yeah. And the harm reduction model spoke to me, really resonated deeply because it was the idea that, um, you know, this is your, whatever substance you're using, right? This is the only way that you know how to cope with something, right? It's almost like, you know, a self-medication and there's a deeper thing going on here, right? The addiction is sort of up here on the surface, right? Yep. But it's yep. pointing to something deeper within you where you've really disconnected with your soul. And I use that word now, right? Yep. At the time yep. it was, okay, there was a disconnection. But that harm reduction model, I worked in that um, unit for, for two years actually and did a lot of research around harm reduction. So, so you know, what you're saying about your, you know, your own journey of sobriety, it's it's, it's so important. And yeah. most of us are addicted to something. You know, yeah. I, I used food. I used alcohol on my journey, you know, to, yeah. to do yeah. everything from numb myself out to give me something to feel connected to yeah. because of all that was buried under the surface. Yeah. So Suppressing all of those emotions and feelings leads to, I mean, it, it, it does. I mean, I love the people who think they're strong enough to eventually it, it, it bubbles to the surface yeah. in some form. So, yeah. um, yeah. no judgment on my end. I, I, no. I, I'm blown away by your journey so far. So at that point you, um, you're, you're waking up spiritually. Um, yeah. Where did things go from there for you? Because it, if you're practicing, um, psychology and and it's uh i mean there are definitely different different um avenues of psychology i'll say you um you're having a shift like you can't keep living that way you can't right. keep practicing psychology the same way no no wow. i couldn't i couldn't i had such a responsibility i felt um in that moment, and I had remembered, so I had this experience um, in my um, first year of grad school, right? So I'm just going to backtrack for a second um, because this is when the shift, when I, when I started to understand there was something else, but I couldn't act on it yet. 
um, in my first year of grad school, this was right after my dad had died. And um, I, I was doing an externship, which is sort of like, you know, a, a part-time internship, if you will. Yeah. I was doing an externship in a clinic, a mental health clinic um, down in the Bronx. And one of my first clients that I was assigned was a little eight-year-old boy. And, you know, an hour before I had this boy coming in, I was handed this file by my supervisor. And she said, here, this is your client. And I said, okay. And I opened this file and I see the history that this little boy's father just died. Mm. And I said, oh, shit. <laughs> right? It was, a, it was an oh, shit moment. No bueno. And I said, oh, no, I can't do this. And I went to my supervisor and I said, I'm sorry, you will have to reassign this child. I can't help him. And she said, it's too late. He's in the waiting room. Go get him. And I said, oh, <laughs> you know, so I go out to the waiting room. I get myself composed and I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, like uh, I'm praying to whoever will listen to me right. to give me the strength to know what to do to help this kid. Right. Wow. He comes in my room, this, this beautiful little boy with deer and headlights right? He is in such a state of fear and paralysis. So he comes in and he sits on the chair mm. and I'm sitting across from him and I'm just staring at this kid. And I have the script in my mind of everything I had been taught to say, right? The protocol, you know, like, hi, Alex, do you know why you're here? You know, the whole thing, right? In that moment that I'm looking in his eyes, I realize that there's no place for this protocol here. None. Wow. And I had to, in that moment, quiet everything down that I heard in my mind, everything that I had been trained to do. And by the way, mm. my supervisors were behind the one-way mirror watching me. Oh, they <laughs> suck. Are you no serious? Yep. Come so, on. Swear to you. I was like, oh, oh this God. is crazy, right? So that in that fair. moment, it's not fair. <laughs> In that moment, I just said, well, you know what? What have I got to lose? Got up out of my chair, went and sat next to him and gave him a gigantic hug. And he started crying. And all of a sudden the door flips open and my professors are like, get off of him. We can't hug anybody. You know, it was that, <laughs> it was that old way of like, you can't touch, you can't do this, you can't. And I looked at them and I said, this kid just needs to be seen and heard. He just needs to know someone gets it. You know, well, I fought to go back in that room. They didn't want to let me in back in with him. Like I was some sort of, you know, I don't know what. And I fought to go back in the room and I sat next to him. I stayed next to him and I said, I see you. I hear you. I lost my dad too. And he all of a sudden, everything, his whole body language softened. Wow. And he looked at me and he said, so you know. And I said, I know. And Ken, we stayed in silence the rest of the session. I held his little hand and we stayed in silence the rest of the session. Oh, my God. That's what he needed, you know. So I, I went back to tell you that story because, you know, fast forward now to when I realized like, okay. I got to throw away the clipboards, throw away the symptom checklist. I took my DSM-5, which if you know, is like the Bible of psychologists, threw that in the trash. You know, actually it was DSM-4 at that time. 
threw it in the garbage, literally, not even kidding you. I threw it in the garbage. And I love books I love and not it. everyone to throw a book away. I chucked that one. Okay. <laughs> I got rid of that. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this my way now. Right. Cause now I was out of school. I had my own practice, you know, which, which that was an interesting story too, how that came to be. I was really handed, handed these gifts, but I knew I could do it my way. And I realized that that little boy, Alex, taught me that everything I had experienced in my life up until that point happened for me in order to help other people, right? Amen. And it was through the light of my wounds that I was going to be able to offer light for other people to help them see the light in their own wounds. And then it all became clear, mm. right? And again, once you see, you cannot unsee. That's amazing. I love that. I love that. I love that. If people could, I this I preach this like the life is happening for you. Yes, it's not happening to you. No, no. And we make choices along the way, but wow, you know what? <laughs> we wow. get opportunities. We get everything we need. You know, we get everything that we need when we need it. Everything is a sign, right? And um, if we can open ourselves to it, you know, we get what we need. Everything is an opportunity and every experience, I, I believe, is the exact curriculum that we need for our soul's evolution. Oh, my right? gosh. Yeah. So powerful. So, so <clears throat> I remember... I better not tell that. I, I was well, so. Oh, I remember, you can tell it. <laughs> I, I remember. I'm 19, 20 years old. 21. I don't know. I had to. I was. I was being forced um, to to go um, take an assessment test mm -hmm. um, to see if I was an alcoholic, and um, I'll never. <laughs> and and I remember. I I I thought I got this. I can. I can get through this. I mean, come on. And, and I went through the whole thing and, and, and I remember going back into the psych psychologist or I, I, I don't know if it's psychiatrist or what, what it was, but anyway, I sit with this woman and she says, so it appears that you are a ticking time bomb and you're going to explode one day and really hurt yourself. And, and I remember I re and others, and I, I, I'm looked at her and she was a rather large, extremely large woman, like extremely large. And I said, you are judging me. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, and I said a couple right. of other things I probably shouldn't have said, but, but you know, I, I, I think that, that it's amazing that you got to this point where it, it amazes me that you got to the place where you recognized everything you just said, everything that had happened, happened for you. Cause most yes. people don't get there. Yes. Yes. I'm grateful. And it, and it took a lot of work to get there, Ken. So, you know, interestingly, right. When, when, you know, we were talking a few minutes ago, right. About this awakening and a spiritual yeah. awakening, and it can sound very glamorous. Right. And you know how many people come into this office every day saying, I want that, you know, I want to have yeah. that awakening. And they think it's all bells and whistles and beautiful and sunshine and rainbows. It is not man. No. Like, 
you know what? It was easier for me to be anesthetized. It was easier for me to bulldoze through. My greatest challenge, I say this all the time, my greatest challenge, if I, if I, you know, if someone asked me the question, right? Someone like yourself said, hey, you know, what's your, what, what's been your biggest challenge in life, right? Yeah. You know, it would be so tempting to say, oh, you know, the panic attacks or the police station things or like all these, you know, all these really traumatizing experiences and, you know, or, or working to raise two boys and have a, a business and a marriage while being sick. None of that were my greatest challenges. You know why? I did that with ease. I just numbed myself out disassociated and bulldozed through. You know what was really hard? Having to slow down and get still and stop and be quiet and listen and yeah. feel and do the work. There, there was the greatest challenge, right? So this spiritual awakening that both you and I can, that we speak of, you know, it's not some, you know, glorified place that we get to, it is a lot of work. And it took me a lot of work to get to the place where I did start to see that everything that happened and happens now for me is an opportunity, is a gift, right? It took a long time to get here. I, I, I you know, I, gosh, I, we've been on here 52 minutes already. That's insane. What? <laughs> it is insane. Ah! Um, so uh, I, gosh, we could talk all day. We could. Uh, so, so this, this, this one question I ask every guest and, and I, I think that, so I want to ask you this in your opinion, what do you think holds people back in life from two things. Number one, real financial success. Hmm. And number two, real happiness and freedom. And, and Christy, in all due respect, I think they are 100% related because okay. I've been homeless and broke and I've yeah. been wealthy and wealthy is a better feeling. It just feels better to know that, yeah. that everything's okay financially. So, yeah. um, what do you think is stopping people from really attaining those super high levels in life? I'm going to answer it with one word and then I'll explain. The one okay. word is trauma and disembodiment. Oh, two words. I lied. I wanted to add that one in. Um, yeah. so, so trauma and disembodiment. And here's why. You know, it would be very tempting to say, oh, fear, you know, fear holds everybody back, right? That's, that's not actually it at all. Um, it's trauma. And, you know, when we experience anything traumatic in our lives, right, um, what happens is, and I alluded to this before, we get cut off from our essence, right? And, you know, something happens that's scary and our protective mechanisms in our brain, right, and our ego take over, and say, okay, you know, we don't want her to feel anything uncomfortable. So we're going to, we're going to lock this away and we're going to give her all these defense mechanisms to live her life by. Right. And those defense mechanisms mm. are things like denial, right. And avoidance and, and, you know, and all of that and repression. Yep, yep. And so we practice living those defense mechanisms and they, they protect us, they keep us safe. Right. But we act as though that's who we are. 
And then we engage with the world in that way. And what happens then is the world engages with us in that way. And what we begin to do is we live according to this very false sense of self, right? This personality that we think we are. And we begin to accumulate all of these limiting beliefs about ourselves and about the world. And that influences our mindset. Now, it would also be way too simplistic to say, okay, so the answer here is we have to change our mindset. No, you cannot change your mind with your mind. The answer is in the body. Mm. Trauma lives in the body. Yep. Anything that we experience in this life comes into us through our five senses and is imprinted in our body, right? Yep. Our cells, our muscles, our joints, our tissues, Yep. our nervous system becomes regulated based on our life experiences. So right now, I would say, you know, the, the estimate is 88%. I would say it's about 98% of Americans, just Americans, not even, you know, all beings, um, have nervous systems that are either locked in a hyper-aroused state or a hypo-aroused state or stuck in the middle, which is like living with your foot on both the gas pedal and the brake at the same time, Okay. So wow. now our nervous system is in paralysis, our energy system, because you know, we're only made of energy, our energy systems are stuck and there's no flow. Okay. Yeah. And we are living that way, right? We're living that way. And that now influences our mind, that influences our thoughts, our beliefs, our actions. So that is my long-winded way of saying that ultimately at the root of anything that holds you back is trauma. And trauma could be something, you know, trauma doesn't have to be abuse or, uh, you know, something that, you know, most people think is like, you know, really horrible. Trauma could be that someone stole your lollipop when you were three and no one helped you deal with it. Right? <laughs> right. It was, you know, something that was jarring to your nervous system, right? right? And your nervous system never recovered and your energy system never um, went back to a state of flow, right? So what is your trauma and my trauma may look different, but trauma's trauma. Point is that is at the root. And the only way, the only way, to move trauma out of us, to get unstuck is through the body. It has to be an embodied experience. Then we can take action in our lives. What, can you, okay. So can you give me, <laughs> I lost you. so no, I, I, I just, I'm, I'm wanting you to, um, I would like for you, if you would ex like, just not exist explain that what do you mean by it has to be experienced like so so if somebody stole your lollipop and you're traumatized you need to go steal somebody else's lollipop no 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 <laughs> not at all okay let me explain i was yeah. trying to be succinct because you know i could talk about this all day ken <laughs> well hey i look it's my show and it's the internet we can go as long as we want but but i i i, I would like to know like because I have that, that question, like, what is the, yes. what do you mean by that? Cause I I've heard people uh, from both sides of the, the argument that you don't have to relive trauma to, to get rid of trauma. No, you don't. I've heard people say you have to go in and you got to dig it up and you got to look at it and you got to massage it and you got, and, and, and so I'm curious what your viewpoint is and what you mean by like, it can only be done through the body. That doesn't make sense to me. I'm yeah. sorry. 
So, no, no, no. I'm glad you're asking because, like I said, Hold I that microphone closer. I can't hear you now. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I love to. I talk with my hands. So I, I know you do. <laughs> I know. <laughs> It's like, part like of that Bronx. Italian girl from the Bronx. <laughs> That's it. I can't help it. <laughs> it's I in my it. blood. I can't help it. Uh, um, so, okay. So here's what I mean about the body, right? And, and no, you do not have to relive trauma. I just want to make sure that that's clear for anybody okay. out there. You do not have to relive trauma in order to heal it. But what you must do, right, is understand what trauma did. So here's the thing. Trauma isn't what happened to you. Okay. It's not, you know, my lollipop was stolen. My father, you know, beat me, you know, it's not, that's not right. actually trauma. Trauma is what happens inside of you because of what happened to you. Okay. That's a big distinction. And, and, uh, Gabor Matei talks a lot about this. His trauma research is just incredible. And, and, um, you know, again, he, he really taught me so much on my journey, but so we have to understand how trauma works then, right? Something has shifted inside of us, okay? As human beings, we are a physical body and we are an energy body, right? We're, we're really just made of energy, right? And we have, we're just like, you know, circuitry housed in the yep. skin, yep. okay? Yep. And we have to understand that when something happens to us, right, um, on the energy level, it's like energy pulls and almost stops moving. There's a state of contraction that happens in the body. It's stuck. Okay. And osteopathic medicine teaches us that a healthy system is a moving system. Energy is free flowing, right? So the minute yep. something gets stuck, we're no longer in a state of ease. We're in a state of dis-ease. Okay. And so that's happening on an energy level and also in the physical body, right? Our nervous system gets stuck, as I said before, in one of those states, right? Hyperarousal, hypoarousal, or somewhere in between, right? And again, it's a place of being stuck. And when that happens, we're automatically in that place of disease, both in our body as well as in our mind. Our mindset is now shaped, our mindset is affected. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there doing mindset coaching and let's, you know, change your beliefs and let's teach you a cool mantra to practice. And the reason that can't work is because your mind is, is shaped. Your, your thoughts are actually shaped through the body, through the energy body and that physical body. So the antidote then, right? So you, you gave the example, um, Ken, or you were asking specifically rather about, uh, you know, uh, financial success, right? And that yep. sort of thing. Yeah. So if something is holding you back and you're not able to take action, right, there is something stuck within you, right? And until you move it at the level of the body versus just trying to change your mind and say, okay, you know, I just need to have a better mindset around money, right? Yeah. Well, guess yeah. what? Money, we're going to, let's talk about money for a second. Money is a root chakra thing root chakra right we know there's there's these main energy centers in the body right yep. that's our basic that's our root that's our base that's our foundation if something happens in our lives that disrupted that fundamental sense of safety and we have a block there well you could practice all the money mantras in the world and you are not going to be able to achieve financial success or even comfort with money. I, I talk a lot, and this is interesting that we're talking about this because I've struggled with this too, comfort around money, Yeah. right? Because right. unless you're comfortable with money, you can't achieve financial success, right? I, right. I, I believe anyway. 
Right. So, so does that make a little more sense, right? That we've got to get into the body and what that looks like at the most foundational level yep. is bringing regulation into your nervous system. Okay. Bringing regulation into the nervous system and unblocking the energy body. And this is the work that I teach people to do, right? That's this my is wife, my wife, I have my wife's comment up on the screen. So how do you unblock? Oh, do I see it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Do we have another hour? Cause I want to teach. No, you. but we have, we can, we can take a few minutes. We can, we got time. Okay. So, so I'm, so, um, you have patients probably waiting in the hallway. Uh, <laughs> soon I will, soon yeah. I will, but, um, but it's all good. They, they should come in and hear this, you know, yeah, I, this they is, should. You know, this is so much of what I do. So much of what I do is teaching people because we have to unlearn everything that we thought was true about what it even means to be human, right? So for example, I'm going to answer your question in a minute, but you know, most people, when I say we're made of energy, they look at me crooked, like what? You know, <laughs> right. most people don't even understand that. And that's no fault of their own, right? That's not what they're taught. We live in a world that benefits from us not knowing that, right? Yeah. But we are all self-healing machines. You know, we can take care of ourselves. We can move our own energy. We can clean out our cells. Yeah. We can reprogram our hormones. We can do all that naturally, right? But no one's taught us. That's what I'm trying to do through rewilding, right? So I how do it. we unblock? How do we unblock? Okay. I'm going to be try to be succinct here. Again, I love this and I could talk about this all day. <laughs> Eric's, Eric's like, so is there a male equivalent? <laughs> Totally. Eric, this is not just for women. I promise. I have so many male clients that are rewilding. So don't be fooled that rewilding sounds like this, you know, really fancy female thing. It's for everybody. My mission is to rewild the entire world. So I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So part of the answer to how we get unstuck and how we get unblocked, I want to talk about the nervous system for a minute, because I find that starting with the physical body, um, People can wrap their head around that yeah. more so than the energy body, right? Right. Yeah. So, yep. so I want to talk about the nervous system. Okay. So, um, you know, more and more people are talking about things like meditation, mindfulness, yoga, right? And so people are getting familiar with these words and people are really looking for ways to relax. And they're sort of understanding like, okay, you know, I had a rough life or had some trauma or I'm really stressed out. Everybody's stressed and burned out now, right? You yep. ask anybody how they are. They're like, I'm so stressed, right? It's just yeah. kind of how so it busy. is. <laughs> so busy. Exactly. Exactly. I'm guilty of that myself, you know, yeah, but right. so people have started to say, okay, well, meditation and yoga, you know, these sound like great ways that I can bring myself into a state of relaxation and then I'll heal. Right. Okay? right. Then I'll get unstuck then I'll get unblocked. And the answer to that is also no, because your nervous system will not actually allow itself to relax if it's dysregulated. Okay. Regulation must come before relaxation. And again, I'm going to try to be very uh, clear in a minute about this. This could be a whole talk in and of itself. And I, sure. and I do teach this because it's so important. Again, we, we need to understand how we work, right? Yeah. As humans. Yep. So it sounds like Metamucil might be involved. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to give you the Metamucil for your brain, right? Yeah, right. I'm kidding. 
So a dysregulated nervous system, as I said before, we're stuck in a hypoaroused state, right? And what does that look like? That looks like anxiety, you know, over anxiety, right? That looks like, um, you know, taking a lot of action steps to make things happen. It looks like running, right? It's, it's the flight or fight. Yeah. Right. Yep. And then the opposite is the hypo arousal, which essentially can look like paralysis, right? Yep. Where we are so um, disconnected, dissociated, paralyzed, maybe can't get out of bed. You know, that might look on the surface like depression. Okay. You know, or again, we're somewhere stuck in the middle and our system is like, we don't know what to do with you. Right. 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 So the answer is to bring regulation. Now, I'm going to give you an example of one method that I use to teach, because I want it to be really concrete um, for you and your lovely wife, right? And yeah. everybody else out there. Yeah. So one of the ways that I teach regulation of the nervous system is by helping to bring people to a place where they feel something, they feel a sensation in the body, right? And they understand, because I teach them, that everything, as I said before, comes in through the body, Okay. Then it's interpreted later by the mind as, oh, anxiety or embarrassment or shame or guilt or failure or whatever, right? That's interpretation. Yeah. But it starts out as sensation. And sensation is inherently neutral, right? If you said to me, oh, you know, I feel tingling in my arm right now, that's neutral. That's not good or bad. It's just tingling in your arm. But if your brain has been conditioned to believe, oh no, tingling my arm means I might be having a heart attack. Something must be wrong. I need to take action. Right. You see, that's, <laughs> right. that's going to translate. That's the thought I have every time my arm tingles. <laughs> Why are we talking? Oh God, what's this mean? Is this a sign? <laughs> I can help you with this cat. <laughs> so what I do is I teach people, right, the, all these behind the scenes, right? And then practically speaking, when I'm sitting with someone, it's okay. They're like, oh, right now in this moment, I feel this. Okay, close your eyes. Bring your attention into your body, yeah. right? What are three sensations you feel in your body now? Tingling in my arm, numbness in my left thumb, you know, uh, twitching in my knee. Okay, now stay there with your eyes closed and do nothing. Watch those sensations. Just watch them. Don't do anything. Okay. After a little while, I say, okay, what are, what are you noticing about those sensations? Tell me about the, tell me about the tingling in your arm. Oh, well, it's moving. It's kind of moving out or, or, you know, I don't even feel it anymore. Okay. Point is, then I bring them back into the room, open your eyes, come back into the space. What we've just done is started to train your nervous system. That sensation isn't to be feared, right? To stay wow. with sensation in the moment. It's just energy moving through you. Allow it to move through you. And it will move out or wherever it needs to be when it's ready, right? So that what we're separating out here is we're not letting the brain make its interpretation. Once the brain jumps in with interpretation, now we take action. Oh my God, something is wrong. I have to do something. I don't want to feel this. Let me go drink. I don't want to feel this. Let me go eat. I don't, right? And yep. we take action. And this is how we keep reinforcing the trauma. Because remember, trauma is what happens inside of us because wow. of what happened to us, right? 
So this is all about now creating new associations with sensation and bringing people back to the inherent neutrality of sensation. So they are no longer reactive and they are responsive. And what does that look like at the nervous system level? Remember I said before, we're either stuck up here, stuck down here, or stuck in the middle. Yep. A healthy nervous system is a flowing one, right? We respond, recover, respond, recover. So we are bringing back flow to the nervous system. Oh, tingling in my arm. Okay, it's leaving. Oh, this is, you know, and it's just that flow. So we're moving out of flight or fight, right? Wow. We're coming out of those states so that we can actually be in the present moment and thrive and not be, you know, I, I call it like soldiers, you know, to our trauma, right? Where our mind is locked in this place. And, um, you know, <laughs> I'm Eric, loving these comments. Isn't that great? It. Isn't that great? I love it. That's your new it. theme song. That I love music. To I write songs too. On loop. You yeah. need to have that on loop in your office. I'm going to. Eric, I write <laughs> songs. I'm going to I'm going to um take that a new sensation. So I yeah, it's it. really it's really powerful work. And again, I'm giving you one yeah, instance and I'm giving you a little bit out of context, but I hope it it um, you know, makes it a little bit more clear. Yeah. Yeah. I think the internet just had a hiccup there for a second. My, my wife, my wife says right here, and I agree, you need to tell everyone where to follow you, how oh. to follow you. We all need to know you way better. In fact, I, I'm going to talk to you. I, I have an idea that I have an idea. So um, you're amazing. Absolutely Thank amazing. You, I hadn't, I hadn't met you until today, so I did not know what to expect. <laughs> um, and you, uh, if I had any expectations at all, you blew way past all of them. You are absolutely unbelievably amazing. So, um, how can people work with you that don't live near you? Yeah, I work with people all over. Um, so you can contact me through my website. It's just, um, christyvanacore.com. Let me and put that I'm up on the social screen. Yeah, I'm on social media, on Instagram, um, Vanacore Embody Your Wilds. I'm also on Facebook. Um, friend requests me. I love to connect with people and I love to hear everyone's stories. And um, yeah, I work with people all over. I also host retreats so um, people can, you know, gather with me for a weekend or a week event and really kind of get a very immersive healing experience. So there's a lot of options. I am. I Well, I need... Um, Sorry to any of my 5,000 friends. One of you are getting bumped. <laughs> <laughs> Christy's getting added. Oh my God. Like you are absolutely unbelievable. I'm so grateful that I, oh. uh, that uh, I'm so grateful. So uh, this has been absolutely amazing. Pam Aubrey, you definitely need to watch this replay. Oh my gosh. Like it, it was phenomenal, phenomenal. Aww. And look, everybody in the comments, they're like, <laughs> I mean, this is, this has been unbelievable. Aww. So, so 
Thank you so much, Ken. I, I didn't even get everything out that I wanted to ask you. <laughs> I'm going to have to have you back on another live stream. Let's do sometime. it. Let's do it. I, I think you're amazing. And and Christy, everybody, you. if you don't follow her, you are missing out on oh. life. So Christy, <laughs> thank you. Your thank book, you, you have a book. Do you, I do, do you have, have a, a book. copy that you can show everybody? I do. Right here, my my little book baby. It's called Rewilding. Hold on, let me give you full screen. One second. There yep. we go. Hold it up so everybody can see that. Okay. Rewilding. It's called Rewilding: A Woman's Quest to Remember Her Roots, Rekindle Her Instincts, and Reclaim Her Sovereignty. And um, I think it was Eric who asked this before. Don't get fooled by the title, even though it says a woman's quest. It's just my quest. But this book oh. um, has been read by men. It's for everybody. So. See, the title makes me think it's only for women. Mm. <laughs> I have to rethink that for my next book, Ken. Thank you. <laughs> the next book is already in process. So <laughs> I, I I have a I'm I'm gonna put this out. I think you and I are gonna write a book together. <sighs> I'm in. I'm in. I'm Let's do this, out Ken. There. I have I already have the title, so wait till you hear it. Um anyway, wait. listen, I am beyond grateful for you coming on today, sharing your wisdom, oh. your love, your heart, your energy, your glow, you. everything. You're amazing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, oh. and Darlene's going to order it. <laughs> She's going to order two and give Aww. one to a man. I love it. Thank I you, Darlene. It. I love it. I love it. You thank you, Ken, really. Thank you so much. And as I started with before, you know, I'm so grateful to you for holding space for people's stories because, you know, we didn't get to talk about, there's so much more we could have talked about, but yeah. storytelling is medicine, you know, yeah. for anyone out there, do not be ashamed of your story. Um, it's really important. Yes. I work with kids, Jill, um, kids and teens. So, wow. you know, storytelling is powerful and can, you know, you blow me away with your own personal story. And then again, having created this beautiful forum for people to gather together, to hear each other and to learn from each other and to create community. It's amazing. And I just feel so honored that you chose me to be here today. So thank uh, you so much. And I can't wait for more. I can't. Even. Robert yeah. says you Americans with the he, she, <laughs> <laughs> He's in Canada. He's in I love Canada. that. That's actually pretty funny, Robert. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, definitely another show, Ken and Christy. I agree. Uh, we're going to do it for sure. Yes. We're do an evening show and hit the evening audiences too. So yeah, Christy, you're amazing. Thank, thank you. you. Everybody that watched and shared this out, thank you. If you didn't share it out, redeem yourself right now and share this out. I, the world needs to hear this message. So Christy, if you would stay with me, I'm going to yeah. end the live stream. I, I don't really want to end the live stream <laughs> for the record. Um, but if you would, if you would stay with me, I'm going to end it. So thank you, everybody. Yeah. Have a wonderful, wonderful Easter weekend. If you celebrate Easter, have a, have a great weekend and we will talk to you guys later. Hang tight for me, Christy. Thanks okay. so much. Thank you everyone for watching.